This escape pod is rated PG for superhero violence and alcohol and cigarette use. And the narrator. Escape pod 257. September 9th, 2010. Union News. The Sum of Its Parts, by Jeffrey R. D. Ringwell. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. I was thinking about our warnings, and how the world has increasingly detailed what we want to warn parents about. It used to be adult language, violence, and adult situations. It took me a while to realize that adult situations meant sex. Now they say sex, drug use, alcohol or cigarette use, comic violence, gore, sexual situations, nudity, etc. Video games are probably the most detailed, while movies are next. I remember the show Arrested Development had to put a big disclaimer on the episode, where one character accidentally took a close-up picture of his dainty bits, and the government thought they were the hills of Afghanistan. I don't know if the censors objected to the situation, or that Henry Winkler, playing an inept lawyer, saw the picture and said, those are balls. I put the alcohol and cigarette use warning on this episode, partly because of irony, because I'm not sure we need to warn kids about them. The use in stories, I mean. I remember growing up with Looney Tunes, which had alcohol and cigarette use. Remember that? The biggest reason I started smoking in my early 20s was because I hung out with smokers, not because I saw a cartoon do it. Now it's rare you'll see people smoking in movies. Adult movies. It still baffles me when we can show kids explosive, damaging, even killing violence. But throw in a cigarette and the world goes mad. Anyway, today we run our 11th Union Dues story. Union Dues, The Sum of Its Parts, by Jeffrey Dorigo. This is an awesome thing, and I'm thrilled that he's built such an epic story on Escape Pod. Jeffrey lives in New Hampshire with his wife Cindy and kids Ian and Margaret, his cats Katie and Joe, and a rotating cast of tropical fish making short stopovers on their way to Davy Jones' locker. He has a story coming out in Live Free or Undead, an anthology of New Hampshire-based zombie fiction. The book will be released in October. More information is available at livefreeorundead.com. As Jeffrey's a favorite of Escape Pod, he wanted to let people know about the development of the Union Dues TV show. It's still simmering along with the pilot episode blueprinted out and loads of concept art in the can. Interested fans can check out 1-800-GO-UNION.COM. We'll have these links on our show notes. To find some unique downloadable stuff from the viral site and email the various union departments, join the Facebook groups, Union Dues, to interface with the producers, and sometimes Jeffrey, get status updates, other news, and download concept art, and Union of Superheroes to participate in the viral side of the development. Finally, he wanted to give a quick health report. Jeffrey says, I've been given a clean bill of health from my cardiologist, am now running 17 miles a week, another 10 in sprightly walking, and have participated in over 10 5K road races since March of 2010, and that's up three from my 2009 total. That's fantastic, Jeffrey. We're all glad to hear that you're doing so much better than you were a couple of years ago. Union Dues, the sum of its parts, is debuting at Escape Pod. And the story is read for us by author and podcaster P.G. Holyfield, author of the newly released Murder at Avedon Hill from Dragon Moon Press. You can learn more about him and his awesome book at pgholyfield.com. So, Bishop takes pawn, and it's story time in three. Union Dues, The Sum of Its Parts, by Jeffrey R. DeRigo. 
I struggle to keep up with Paul as we run the track around our little base camp, smack dab in the middle of nowhere, Nevada. Population five, though sometimes seven, we call the Boneyard. The track snakes around a cluster of decommissioned and skeletonized B-17s. Half mile east is our airstrip, control tower, and a single hangar. The rest of the place is a giant rectangle, big planes in the middle, small planes on the western edge, tanks and trucks and jeeps on the eastern edge. When we aren't training, we tinker. That's how we cobbled together our one working jeep. The nearest civilian hamlet, Plainstown, sits about 40 miles east of us, with a bar, a post office, a general store, and about 60 people. We've never visited West of us, by only three miles or so, is a range of wind-eroded, sandy hills. A hundred years ago, the Boneyard was a stopover village on the great westward migration, with a few crazy 49ers putting down picks here for tin and iron, rather than striking further out for gold and silver. Now, though, in 1955, even their ghosts have moved on. The first couple of weeks here, I hiked and camped the hills, but you can only map so many crumbling tin mine entrances before you'd rather spend all day hand-disassembling P-51 Mustangs in 120-degree heat. Come on, Alex. Don't make me carry you. Paul's voice echoes off the painted tail rudder of a B-17, the hovering Hattie. A red-headed pinup in a skimpy bathing suit lounges just behind the cockpit. If I had a can of olive drab, I'd cover her legs. Stephen and Jim laugh and cheer me toward the finish. I cross it at a jog, then stagger for a few towards the red pump handle and trough. I pump a soup can of cool water out of the well and pour it over my head. The spring water below the boneyard carries a faint whiff of diesel spill off from the vehicles. Jim puts his trembling hand on my shoulder. You're still slower than old General Traster. I shrug him off and laugh. I'm getting better. My face cleans up okay, and the cool water chases off rivulets of dusty sweat. Paul puts an enormous but surprisingly gentle palm on my chest and pushes me away from the pump. I got a drink, he says, then takes a one-pound coffee can with Paul's cup painted on the side and fills it to overflowing. His 500 muscle pounds require a whole lot of water out here in the desert. I fish a pack of Chesterfields from my breast pocket and light one. The smoke punches against the inside of my chest like a gaseous fist. I cough a bit. I always cough right after a run. Steve says, And you wonder why you can't keep up. Ought to let Frida do her thing for you. Thanks for the unsolicited advice. I drag once more, cough again, then think about crushing the butt out with my boot but I don't do it. The far-off whine of a DC-3's twin propellers echo across the boneyard. Traster's back early. You guys go ahead. I have to drink more. Paul levers the pump handle and shoves his cup under the spigot. We run for the control tower. We've been together, the five of us. That is me, Paul, Stephen, Jim, and Frida since February of 1953. We all joined up to test a multi-disease immunity serum for the Army. The promise was a safe way to serve the country and still remain conscientious objectors. But the Korean War ended. The serum didn't make us immune to disease, but, well, Paul can bench press a dump truck. Jim springs around like a top gymnast. Stephen generates and projects electricity. 
Frida reads minds and influences other people's thoughts. And me? I think about the really big picture. Jim handsprings past me, then rockets upwards before twisting over the turret of a Sherman tank. Man, I'm never going to get tired of doing that. I get to the tower, gasping, about 40 seconds after the others. Maybe they're right about the cigarettes. Just in time for the shadow of Traster's plane to smear over the boneyard. Steve pops his head out of the control tower window. Hey, Colonel Langdon's with them. Langton has been under lock and key observation since two weeks ago when he sucker-punched Paul right in the middle of a publicity shoot for Stars and Stripes at a USO hall in Phoenix. The five of us almost couldn't bring him down. The melee wrecked most of our stage props. Van de Graaff generators, Tesla coils, a whole bunch of blinking and flashing stuff bought from a bankrupt low-budget film studio. Frida recovered the 30 seconds or so of 16mm footage shot that morning. Police found the reporter a few hours later, unharmed but minus any memory of the previous two days. The DC-3 taxis to the hangar. Paul joins me at the base of the control tower, then the four of us walk down toward the plane. Hi, gang, the corporal says and waves as he lumbers down the fuselage to the sand. He walks right to Paul. How's the chin? Sorry about popping you one. I don't remember any of it, but Frida says I was a real dope. Paul laughs a little. It's okay. No broken teeth or nothing. He rubs his anvil-like jaw with a boxing glove-sized fist. Next time I won't go easy on you. Frida descends next and waits for the general to follow. She's out of her usual white nurse's uniform and wearing a gray aircraft mechanic's jumpsuit. The get-up isn't wholly unattractive on her, but it still seems inappropriate. The others clearly don't mind. Langton pumps Paul's hand until the knuckles whiten. Maybe you and me hit the weights once I get the okay from the brass? All this rest is making me groggy. I'd like that, Paul says, and returns the squeeze. Langton yanks his hand free and chuckles. He's almost as strong as Paul now, but manages it with fewer of the side effects. No mountains of muscle, so no constant eating. He's a lot of almost. Almost as quick and lithe as Jim, almost as smart as me. Almost generates as much electricity as Stephen. Almost as intuitive as Frida. Almost here as little as General Traster. Almost. He apologizes to the rest of us. Not that it makes our lingering bruises any less tender. But it's nice that he seems genuinely remorseful. It's well past midnight. The chessboard catches plenty of light from the nearby full moon outside. I've got Langton pinned on QR1, and while he's tried to flank my center, I keep forcing him onto defense. Mate in three. Don't tease me. I can think my way out. He reaches for a bishop with a clear path to a guarding pawn. Mate in two. If you move that one, I mean. Shut up. He laughs, but pulls his hand away from the board. How'd you win Waterloo if you were Napoleon? Don't chase Wellington over the hill. Napoleon should have known what Wellington had for force, but that oversight. You're not going to distract me. I chuckle and glance out the window. The color washout from the full moon over the shapes of the airplanes makes the boneyard weird and ethereal. Napoleon knew he couldn't lose. That's how Wellington was able to beat him. You don't make sense sometimes. Okay, a different question, and this isn't a distraction one. You can stop the chess timer. 
I reach over and press both buttons atop the little timer beside the board. You guys, you, are pacifists, right? But when I attacked you and Phoenix, you all put a pretty good hurting on me. I thought pacifism meant you didn't fight no matter the circumstances. We didn't fight to hurt you. I can't say for sure that everyone is like me, but I took my lumps and gave out plenty to keep you from hurting the others. Pacifism means I won't engage in war. It doesn't mean I'll let you kill my friends, even if you aren't really in control of yourself. Langton peers across the board for a minute. So you're not like, what are they, Quakers? Yes, we're not like Quakers. Does it bother you? Pacifism, I mean. No, I'd just like to know what I'm looking at on the table is all. The scream of stressed metal breaks the quiet as Paul rolls over on his special bunk. He lets out a long snore and drifts back to silence. No wonder we can't sleep. Langton rubs his eyes. I haven't slept without sedatives in a month. It's probably nothing, just annoying. It's not like I'm walking around tired or anything. I sleep fine, just not for very long. Insomnia is a side effect of my ability. Can I ask you something? Langton drums the table and vibrates the chess pieces enough that they might topple over. Sure. Why'd you get involved in this program? You were a military man. Hardly the sort that serves the country by taking injections and being examined. Langton eases back. His hands come to rest on his lap and he stares out into the night. Let's just play chess. Mate in three. Come on, I told you about us. You tell me about you. The colonel stares at me and then leaves the board and strides over to his bunk. I shouldn't be so sensitive. Sometimes even here with you guys I feel like an outcast. Spending all that time in the hospital isn't helping. Did Traster keep you guys cooped up like me after the change? We were the accidental prototypes, Colonel. They studied us for 18 months before dumping us out here. You only changed a few months ago. I'm surprised you're out here at all, to be frank. You're feeling like an outcast, because you are. Sort of. Cohesiveness takes time. Going bananas at the USO Hall probably didn't help. I wonder how I'll make up lost ground with the others after that. You haven't designed a strategy? Well, no. Can I? I mean, Traster has me reading volume after volume of battle descriptions, historical accounts, army archives. Sure. Just relax and try not to worry. Once you figure out how to add the datum to the chorus voices in the strategy maelstrom, it'll just pop for you. I mean, it should. Maybe because you're a little like Frida, too, there's, there's interference. Like all your abilities clash a little, and that's what's holding you back. I'm really trying hard to be good at this, but... I don't think I'll ever get as comfortable with these powers as the rest of you have with yours. Is that why you don't want to talk about why you volunteered? Look, we're all going to be working as a little squad here for a long time. Langton sighs. He eases up on one big arm enough that his eyes catch the moonlight and almost glow like a cat's. I'm a victim. Something. Someone denounced my uncle as a communist. The Un-American Activities Commission asked him to list any family members who might hold positions of influence in the government or military. My name was mentioned. One thing leads to another and I get pulled in too. Not that I'm a communist or anything, but my folks weren't religious and I wasn't raised religious and I guess that makes a difference. They said I was atheist, then communist, which is the same thing, I guess. You can't get out unless you name others. I folded. I lay in silence and listened to Langton suck in sharp little breaths. 
Who'd you name? I graduated from West Point. Who'd you name? No one, a distant cousin, a kid I used to pick on in elementary school, anyone I could think of that might let me keep my commission. My uncle was already flirting with jail, and I didn't want to join him. Traster heard my testimony, bought me a drink afterwards, told me he had connections and could make this go away. General Traster had asked me to write up a strategy for identifying suspect Stalinists in homogeneous society about six months ago. I suggested focus on seeming random selection, then work through the family and friend tree of those selected. Start with people who don't regularly attend church and have connections to labor unions, the downtrodden, or social services, just like panning for gold. Key punishments vague to foster a sense of fear and dread. Reinforce that Stalinists, communists, socialists are the antithesis of the society our forefathers envisioned, and that has made us so powerful and wealthy. I shudder a little. Langton is here. Because of me. Hey, you listening? Sorry. Yeah. So the general offered me a chance to keep my commission while volunteering. I didn't really understand the job, but it sounded better than being drummed out or spending 15 years in Leavenworth. He walks to the window and gazes out at the boneyard. I wish I could sleep. Play chess? I sit up and stifle a yawn. Promise not to fling the board when I beat you? (laughs) Deal. He offers a relieved laugh. I light a cigarette and walk over to the table beside the screen door. You ought to let Frida do her thing for you. Yeah, yeah. Mate in three. Barracks 2 reeks of antiseptic now that we're using the basic med station set up in the back third for more than just routine exams. Frida's quarters are here, too, along with the radio room and General Traster's office. Paul places the last of three big wooden crates beside the General's desk. Jim, Stephen, and me are lined up along the wall. Colonel Langton stands on a concrete pedestal while Frida measures his inseam. I turn my head until I'm sure she's finished. You're bigger, she says. Obviously. General Traster breezes into the room and barely manages to hide a scowl at Frida, whose hands linger between Langton's legs. He drops his briefcase on the desk. Sorry to be so abrupt, but I've chosen the Liberty League. We'll focus on a red, white, and blue color scheme. We all groan. The Liberty League is the name we all disliked, because it's both juvenile and insanely patriotic. Gee, General, Langton says, you don't think that'll make selecting character names a little harder? We're going to sound like an 8th grade history roadshow. Things are going to get really crazy for a while, and I want to try and protect you guys. So if that means sounding like a, what'd you say, 8th grade history roadshow, then we'll be the best goddamn show in America. Once things go back to normal, then we'll redefine the mission. Just let us talk to the public. It's about time they met the Liberty League, anyway. Langdon throws his arms up, and little blue flickers of lightning creep up between his arms like a giant Jacob's Ladder. Whoa! Langton swings his arms down and discharges into the concrete pedestal. Hey, Steve, how the hell do you control this stuff? Just relax. Steve laughs a little. It'll end on its own, but you have to watch for the triggers and always know where you can ground. The last of the blue arcs leap down from Langton's fingertips. The room stinks like a dozen burnt radio tubes. General Traster chuckles. (laughs) That's why you aren't out in the open yet. Sorry. I didn't have any way to practice in the hospital. Langton cranes his head back so we can see his smile. 
I think my character name should be Tank Jefferson or Captain Washington. What do you think? Frida says, since we have to be ultra-American and all, how about Earl Harbor or Norman D. Beach? Traster pries the crate top open and pulls aside clumps of straw. He struggles a wrapped black something over the lip. Alex, this one's yours, I think. Costumes, and they're really heavy. I struggle my packet onto the floor. I study the contents. It's gray with olive highlights along the seams. The suit comes with a helmet and goggles sort of like what a tank driver wears, only the helmet has an enameled green steel shell over the cranium part. Each kit contains a cotton-lined nylon bodysuit, black, with a zipper offset to the right and a tunic flap that folds over to a button on the opposite shoulder. The helmet plugs into the suit, and the suit plugs into a wrist radio that is also heavy. A green cloth belt holds two six-volt batteries, like twin canteens, to power the radio. Altogether, the suit weighs 17 pounds. Traster holds up a short-sleeved uniform top, obviously cut for a woman's figure. Aluminum chain mail encased in double layers of nylon fabric and rubber. It'll stop anything short of 30 caliber at close range. Fire and chemical resistant. Electrically grounded. Jim wriggles into his shirt and hops around a bit. We're going to get tired quick in these. Especially in the heat here. With practice, you'll be able to move around in these just like normal. Frida takes her packet and retreats to her walled-off segment of the hut. Hey, there's copper in mine. Stephen fastens the buckles running up each side of the top tunic. That channels electricity to your hands. The colonel has them, too. It's to keep the suit from burning up. Traster pulls a sheaf of photos from his briefcase. Concept art. We're going to use these on the posters and other materials. There's some character detail on the back. Memorize it. The concept art looks like blown-up comic book panels. My character is crouched down on one knee with his right fist thrust forward and his face, my face, screams at something outside the boundaries of the panel. I try to compare myself with the comic image, but I just don't see it. We'll talk about character names later. Say, Colonel, now that you're fitted, why don't you and the rest of the team get another run in? Alex, we'll join you later. Langton answers for them all. Sure thing, General. Traster waits to be sure they are outside the hut before closing and latching the door. I've scheduled another photo shoot for the October issue of Look magazine. We need to have everyone in costume and comfortable with their roles well before then. I light a cigarette before offering one to the general. Traster sits back and rubs the puffy bags just beneath his wide eyes. You have to step up to the plate, Alex, and help me hold this group together by letting Colonel Langton call the shots. Sir? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? It's easy to showcase super strength, or super agility, or energy manipulation. Heck, even Frida has a visible hook. Legs that stop traffic, though I don't think that's superhuman. Langton is a so-so leader, but he looks the part. Leader? I thought we were more of a leaderless group, General. Congress? Hell, everyday Americans are afraid of anything that even appears collectivized or communal. You understand? We need a hierarchy. We need to look like a military organization or a sports team. Teams have captains. Sir, this hyper-patriotism is causing real damage now. I know you put my strategy blueprint into practice. What if the colonel finds out I wrote that paper? If he hits me the same way he hit Paul, I won't just get bruised. He'll take my goddamn head off. That strategy was meant to be 
theoretical. Traster's brown eyes reflect all the guilt in the world, and a little of the sorrow. Alex, your plan worked better than anyone could have hoped, at first. But now, every two-bit representative who can find a radio news announcer is on the air claiming to know for certain that X number of confirmed communist agents have infiltrated the Army, Navy, Marines, FBI, Hollywood, like a snake eating its own tail. I'll write up how to stop it. Traster looks right through me. His voice falls confession quiet, and for once, he sounds almost grandfatherly. It's too late, Alex. Pandora's box is open. Traster crushes the last remnants of his cigarette to signal the end of our conversation. You know, Frida can make you not want these. You ought to let her do her thing. 4 a.m. Since Frida and the general returned to the boneyard, I moved the typewriter to a little supply room on the far side of the men's quarters. I'm 17 pages into the writing of a strategic recommendation for reversing anti-communist hysteria when Frida enters with a percolator of fresh coffee and a setting for two. I couldn't sleep, she says. And when I saw your bunk was empty, I thought we could not be able to sleep together. Thanks. She pours both cups of coffee and hands me one, black. I like cream in mine. So put cream in it. I'm not your waitress. Frida's voice is firm and confident, almost manly in its gruffness. We both chuckle a little, but admittedly it bugs me. We all have roles. Society defines them, and we don't get to pick. Not the big stuff, at least. Frida never had a strong mother figure to teach her how women were meant to fit into society, and now that she's different than every other woman on Earth, she acts like the rules of the game don't apply to her anymore. What's that? Frida steps around my chair and peers down at the curl of paper in the general's typewriter. It's a strategic recommendation. I can read it. Just give me a second. Look at me. There, got it. Communist hysteria stuff. All strategy, nothing I'm interested in at all. See, painless, and by morning I'll have forgotten every word, which is just as it should be. So, why even ask? She's quiet for a minute, and stands peering out into the outside darkness. Traster's putting Langton in charge once we go public. The colonel's body metabolizes sedatives too quickly for them to be effective now. I saw the plans as I was doing my lullaby act inside his head. I light a cigarette and drop the match into an overflowing ashtray on the windowsill. He told me yesterday. Interesting that he's chosen a civilian publication to make the announcement. Frida takes the cigarette from my fingers and drags before crushing it out in the ashtray. I used to like these, she says through a burst of gray smoke. You should let me quit for you. It'll only take a minute or two. <sighs> drop it. Fine. If you knew what Traster had in store for us... What sort of leverage do you think you'd have? Frida lilts, unusually coy even for her. I mean, I have some information. We aren't naked all the time we're alone or anything. I grimace and walk for the door. I'd rather talk about quitting smoking than think of you and him together. Jealous? The anger sneaks up on me before I'm able to stifle it. Of course I'm jealous. What kind of man would I be if I weren't? It's just not me. I realize then that she's inside my head, plucking little thoughts and synapses like harp strings. I've never felt those kind of feelings for Frida. She's planting anger and jealousy, envy and rage to influence how I deal with Traster in the future. Once my subconscious recognizes the infiltration, it spontaneously executes a defense. 
I go into strategic, conceptual thinking overload. D-Day, Blitzkrieg, Marathon, Gaul, a hundred football games, chess matches all merge into one web of arrows and numbers and splashes of terror and exhilaration. The maelstrom traps Frida. She slaps her hands over her eyes. Her mouth jerks open and she tumbles backwards against the file cabinet. I calculate the fuel needs to run a B-29 firebombing raid over Pyongyang, the rate of decay for human bodies in the mud of 1917, I pray. Frida begins to scream in earnest. Make it! Make it stop! Oh my god! Oh my god! Make it stop! Pain throbs right behind my eyes. Hot blood drips down my upper lip. I snatch Frida's wrists and force our eyes to meet. More death, more destruction, doomed armies bayonet charge a hilltop. Buildings collapse, explode, planes fall from the sky, bombs, death, bodies, so many bodies. Legions of men clash, water, a flood, biblical plagues, poison gas, no escape, total war. She lets out one last penetrating shriek, then slumps back against the desk, unconscious. I lean on the windowsill and pant like I've just run the track. The nosebleed takes a while to staunch. The headache will require aspirin or whiskey or both. Probably both. I fumble some smelling salts from the cabinet and wave them beneath Frida's face. Her eyes snap open. Frida glances back and forth and focuses on me just for a second before I help her up. She whispers, No one has ever pushed me out before. She slugs the last of her coffee. Her hands shake as she places the heavy cup back on its saucer. She straightens her ivory-colored robe and flannel nightgown. Frida whispers, How can you summon such horrible imagery? You're a pacifist, Alex. For God's sake. She backs away slowly. Don't you ever pull something like that with me again. I drop into my chair and let the work swallow me up again. We round the corner at the hovering Hattie when Colonel Langton collapses. The morning sun hasn't even warmed the sand up yet so he can't have dropped from heat. I'm the only one wearing my armor today, and if I don't drop, there's no reason anyone else should. Paul carries Langton off to the infirmary, with all of us in pursuit. Frida runs ahead and slams the door open. She was a nurse before volunteering for this gig, though I've heard rumors that she and Traster were already an item before then, and that he convinced her to sign on to the program to add variables. She's the only trained medical staff at the Boneyard. Colonel! Can you hear me? Frida peers down at Langton's face. She counts to five and watches his chest heave up and down like an oversized bellows. Get straps on him, Alex. I throw a thick leather belt over his left wrist and fasten it. Paul does the same on the other side, then takes a spot at the end of the bed and holds Langton's feet. A seizure? Stephen sifts through a black medical bag. She climbs onto the gurney. Alex, try and force his eyes open. Figures we'd have two good months, right? Enough that we all get comfortable again, right? Traster's in Washington again, right? Frida shakes her head. Whoever's being negative, stop it. I have to focus. We all look at one another, then shrug. It's not us. Wonderful, Frida says. At least we know he's not brain dead. Colonel Langton's arms flex slowly. His hands ball into fists the size of softballs. The leather straps are meant to hold normal patients. There's no telling how long it will take someone with augmented strength to snap them or twist up the stretcher if the straps don't give. Langton gurgles something, then goes slack. 
The room resonates with a weird and almost unearthly sound, low-frequency whir that rises into a boom so loud it rings my ears. The sound precedes a pressure wave by only a split second. The windows explode out. The fluorescent light fixtures shatter into sparks, razor-sharp snow, and puffs of toxic powder. I shove Frida down. We duck and cover behind Traster's desk until the room quiets. Langton screams, slalom between the pulses. My eyes burn with arc flash. Black spots float in the foreground and I can't blink them away. Status! Anyone! Anyone? I step over the unconscious bodies of the others and heaps of rubble. Frida climbs out from behind the desk. He's got maybe two minutes before he generates enough power for another whatever that was. The phone is dead. So is my wrist radio. Electromagnetic pulse. Amazing. What do we do? What if he's dead, Alex? Frida, for all her bluster and independence, for once acts like what I imagine when I say woman. Frail. Frightened. Indecisive. It nauseates me. I'll apologize to her later, if there is a later. Langton lies there, eyes wide, pupils bleached out with only black smudges radiating out from the iris's edge. He's either unconscious or using one of his other abilities. As long as it's not strength, he'll stay tied down. I check the others each for pulses. They're alive. Frida climbs atop Langton's chest. She puts both hands on his sweaty cheeks and stares down into his eyes. He's conscious, sort of. She turns to face me. He's cycling through some report about ferreting out communists. Yeah, a report he stole from Traster. I can't keep up with him, Alex. His brain is like yours. Oh, God. What? He's going to kill you. Frida turns her attention to me for just a second. Run! I'll, I'll try to calm him down. Langton screams and writhes, though he still isn't completely conscious yet. The leather strap holding his wrist to the gurney frame pops, and it sounds like a pistol shot. Frida skitters off and backs to the door. He'll be free in a minute, Alex. What do we do? I push the current situation into the maelstrom, and the answer materializes almost immediately. Go and get into the jeep out back. What about the others? He doesn't care about them, yet. His rage is all for me. He's been setting us up probably since before the fight in Phoenix. Whatever triggered his feigning spell today accelerated his plans. What? Why? Because of something I wrote for General Traster. He knows that one-on-one -on -one I can't beat him. Do what I say and get the jeep. Frida scrambles out. Langton reaches across and peels the gurney's chrome rail off the frame like it's made of cray paper. His voice is distant, dreamy. Alex, you son of a bitch. Colonel, if you want me, you'll have to come find me. And you better bring your A-game. I think. Come on, Napoleon. Come over the hilltop. Frida skids the jeep around the corner, and I leap into the passenger seat. Get us to the hangar. We speed through the boneyard until the jeep skids sideways into the hangar. You have to hide. What about you? I have a plan. I take her cheeks in my hand and stare into her eyes until I know she's peered. Got it? Frida nods. I lean in and plant one right on her surprised and very red lips before she can withdraw. 
Don't tell anyone, okay? I kick down the door to a locked storage room at the back of the hangar, then ferret out a backpack, 20 sticks of dynamite, caps, and a detonator. Hide in the hovering hattie. Once Langton passes you, wait five more minutes, then double back and check on the others. They'll probably need first aid. Get going. I slide into the driver's seat. She says, Good luck. Then, before I can protest, returns the kiss from the hangar and disappears into the boneyard. I shove the pack of explosives into the back of the jeep and drive west. The light dies about twenty feet into the mine shaft. I crouch low beneath one of the timber crossbeams spanning the narrow rectangle of carved sandstone. This used to be a silver mine, but judging by the antique quality of the candle and oil lamps piled along the wall near the entrance, the miners abandoned it somewhere around the turn of the century. Colonel Langton has never spent time in these shafts like the rest of us have. His travels with the general and his months of additional hospital time have kept him mostly away from the boneyard. And when he is on base, we have more important things to do than play Boy Scout Miner 49er. I've intentionally left my belt and radio on the rocks about 40 feet south. Langton's shadow passes before the entrance. Alex? Frida? His words float down, bouncing from shaft wall to shaft wall until the echoes scramble it into something like the whisper of a ghost. Frida can hide from me, but you can't, Alex. The colonel's silhouette pauses. A tiny tickle flares up on the back of my mind. He's reading me, and my mind immediately goes defensive. I struggle to rein in the maelstrom. I want him to read me, to sip the little bit of fear lurking there. Come out, I want to talk to you. You'll have to come get us, Colonel. I'm disappointed the others weren't able to knock you down this time. Today the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. Don't worry, Alex. Once I'm done with you, whipping them into shape will be simple. Simple? As what? Naming innocent people as communists? Langton roars. Your strategy, Alex, not mine. Your recommendation. His eyes flicker like two pinholes in a shadow puppet. The mine works in my favor. The low ceiling hampers his agility. The narrow width makes his strength and size a liability. Termites in Brazil use the same strategies to defend their nest against marauding army ants. They take away the ants' strength in numbers by forcing them to raid in single file. You're not a victim. You only volunteered when given the choice between this and jail. You're a coward. Don't you turn this around on me. No? Why keep your rank, Colonel? Why not take a new name like we all did? You don't want to be part of this team. You want to lead it. You don't want to kill me because of a ruined career. It's because I'm a threat to your position. You've got all five of our powers, but none of them as strong as any of us individually. With me out of the way, suddenly there's a spot for you that isn't just as a pointless figurehead. Maybe it'll get you in good with Frida, too. Langton pounds the wall. A cascade of sand and dust rains down. Maybe I'll just knock the shaft apart and let you stew in the dark for a while. How about forever? How about mate in three? He freezes. His silhouette seems to almost snap to attention. Huh? What? I charge ahead and ram my shoulder right into Langton's middle. He slams the wall sideways and stumbles. I scoot past and grab the detonator hidden in the pile of old lamps and shovels. I count. One, 
two, three, run for the light and shove the plunger down. I blink into burning noontime sunlight. My cheeks, nose, and forehead burn. My ears ring so badly, I barely understand Frida's voice as she splashes water over my face and sits me up. Sorry I'm late. It's a long walk. I stare at the newly smoothed hillside. I killed him. God help me, I'm a murderer. Frida helps me to my feet. He was planning to do us all in. I saw it. You were the first target because you were the most dangerous. So, it's self-defense. Meaningless semantics. I lean on the jeep and drink more water. My back and legs feel like they've been used as a trampoline. At least a costume did its job. You're going to be bruised up. How are the others? I root through the glove box and beneath the seats for a first aid kit that might have some aspirin tablets. Frida takes the canteen and swigs, slipping off the last of their memories of the colonel. Now, Langdon is nothing more than a fuzzy memory of a desert endurance drill. I'll do the same for Traster. I'm going to have a headache for weeks. She pauses. There's only one loose end left. Are you ready? Don't. I shouldn't be allowed to forget this. I start the jeep. She says, Guilt doesn't suit you. I'll live with it. There is one thing you can help me with, though. I light a cigarette, drag on it once, and toss the butt into the sand. Take those away. Are you sure? I don't hesitate to answer. Yes, go ahead. I trust you. Frida smiles just a little. About time, she says. And that was our story. This story was really interesting to me because I always feel lacking when it comes to the strategies of war or chess. Thinking ahead and anticipating moves, sacrificing one area to strengthen another, it's all very Greek to me. However, I do study Kung Fu and I'm slowly learning to look at an opponent and learn where his or her strengths are so I can find their weaknesses. Perhaps this is the kind of mindset that would help me in other aspects of life. I don't plan on going to war, but I do play some strategy games with my husband. I just think I'm not very good at anticipating people's movements. I have this problem when people ask me about trends in fiction or podcasting. Where will we be in six months or a year? If there's one thing podcasting has taught me, it's stuff happens suddenly and fast. Half of the decisions I make about my career are done blindly. Eventually, if I throw enough darts in the dark, I'll hit that bullseye, I figure. Or I'll get thrown out of the bar for throwing dangerous darts around a blacked-out room. But... Bill Peters has returned this week with yet more feedback. Take it away, Bill. Hey, this is Bill with feedback for episode 249, Little Match Girl, by Heather Shaw and read by R. Merlafferty. The San Francisco-based story about the future of work and drugs was originally published in Tumbarumba, which, for those of you who haven't heard of it, is a cool little Firefox plug-in anthology that injects stories into the internets you would otherwise be reading. Discussion of the story focused on some of the similar works in the genre, Brave New World, One Dimensional Man, and the philosophical underpinnings for the dystopic undertones of the story, and also why you should name your kids Strontium Xantipia. Hayes said the story was a bit of wish fulfillment for him. I've had some sense that mixing expanders and contractors would have an effect on the character, and yeah, there's probably some deep social commentary. 
but for me, I reveled in her experience of the flame. I let myself get a little lost in her wandering, because that's the kind of wish I needed fulfilled right now. Allie said that it was a beautiful story with no purpose, and asked, were the drugs being used to keep the working classes under control? To which Atams replied, I don't think this story is about a dystopian society. It's a story about a society much like our own, except that technology has advanced to a point where drugs can be engineered to make the workforce more effective. As Murr said in the outro, think about the people these days whose work lives depend on caffeine or Prozac or Ritalin. And that's it for this week. I'll be digitally reunited with you next week with the feedback episode 250. Eros, Philia, Agape. Thanks, Bill, for all the work you do behind the scenes at Escape Pod, which is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. If you're wondering what this means, it means you can send it to a friend, but you can't say, hey, look what I wrote. You can't change it, and you can't charge them for it. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Blog about us, talk about us, tweet about us, or donate to us. That last one actually does the supporting of the podcast. And if you have an extra five this month, think about giving to Escape Artists. We are a paying market, and we believe our authors deserve all sorts of shiny baubles. Our PayPal button is at escapepod.org. Please check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy, at their .org domains. Escape Pod is edited by Mer Lafferty, with Bill Peters as the assistant to the regional manager, or the ARM. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. So that was our show for this week. Our quote, naturally, is from the musical Chess, the song written by ABBA, One Night in Bangkok. And thank God I'm only watching the game, controlling it. We'll see you next week, and be mighty.